Hi, welcome to the Higher Education Coffee and Conversation Podcast. I'm Cheryl Broom, CEO of Graduate Communications. This is the ninth episode of, of the podcast, and I'm super excited to report that we've had more than 300 downloads. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope the content on the podcast is engaging, insightful, and meaningful to you. Today's guest, Dr. Dilsey Perez, is the Vice President and Assistant Superintendent at Cerritos College in California. Cerritos College is the only community college in California, and it, and it may be in the whole nation, that has purchased property for homeless students. The Village provides safe and secure housing and support services to students who face housing insecurity. Not only that, the college has set up a number of systems to support students and is a national leader in diversity and equity efforts. The work the college has done has resulted in improved outcomes for students and is proof that when a whole college works together, it can break silos to create amazing support structures for students. There is so much to learn from Dr. Perez, so let's get started. All right, well, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. So I always like to get started by asking guests to tell me a little bit about themselves and their background within the community college system. And you have a particularly interesting background. So I'm really excited to have you share that with the audience. Um, I grew up and was born into a military family. And so I've had the wonderful opportunity of traveling the country. Uh, I've lived in Arizona, Maine, Georgia, uh, graduated high school in Okinawa, Japan. And so I uh, feel very privileged to have had that experience. I married into the, uh, a man that was in the Marine Corps. And so uh, we also had the experience of traveling uh, the country and uh, was really excited. Um, I went to college. Um, I went to really six different community colleges to collect my degrees as I was traveling the military, but landed after I got married in uh, Oceanside in Camp Pendleton and learned about a school called Cal State San Marcos that had just opened uh, in San Diego. And so I went to uh, Cal State San Marcos and received a degree in political science and then began to work in the field and industry, worked for a district attorney, was a paralegal, legal investigator, also worked in insurance, worked for an insurance company as a claims examiner for a while, but ultimately landed in outreach at Cal State San Marcos and got my master's in 2000 from Central Michigan University. And at that time, uh, distance learning was, was growing and expanding. And on Camp Pendleton, they had a Central Michigan site where they would fly out the faculty members uh, to teach the classes, which was really cool. And so really enjoyed that program and got my master's in administration uh, with an emphasis in org development and worked at Cal State San Marcos in, in outreach and progressed and then worked in student life. My husband's military career took us back to Okinawa, Japan. I didn't think that I would ever be coming back to California. I thought our chapter in California was done, but we were in Japan for about a year and a half. And Cal State San Marcos called in Japan and said, we have an interim director of student life opportunity and would love for you to come back. And so I interviewed uh, in my pajamas over the phone and actually got the, the interim assignment and I did that for about five years and then was promoted to the Associate Dean of Co-Curricular Education. 
did that for about another two years. And someone had talked to me about getting a doctorate. And so I applied to a doctoral program at San Diego State. And at the same time, I became the dean of students at Cal State San Marcos. I enjoyed being a dean of student. I learned in that position that I enjoyed crisis situations and I was very good at navigating very difficult um, student challenges. And so I got my doctorate in educational leadership with an emphasis in community colleges. You know, people were saying, what are you going to do once you finish your doctorate? And I said, I'm going to rest. I'm going to rest. But a friend of mine told me about a job opening at Miracosta College. And I always knew from my prior experience in community colleges that I wanted to, to give community colleges a chance. And, and, and go back as a professional and not just a student. And so I applied for the, the position at Miracosta and I was lucky and privileged to, to get that position and had the opportunity to be there for two years and love that experience. And just in collaboration with my supervisor at the time and just thinking after the two years of if I ever wanted to be a vice president, uh, what would I need to do? And so literally applied for um, a position at Cerritos College of Vice President of Student Services. And in 2019, uh, started there as the Vice President of Student Services. And I have been here and enjoying it and learning and growing. So that's a little bit about me, but it's been a great, great journey. I remember when we hired you when I was at Miracosta because another, I think he's associate vice president at the time, Scott Gross called me from Cal State San Marcos mm. and said, I can't believe that you're taking Dulce Perez. Mm. <laughs> so you were very highly respected on that campus. Um, and I know that you did a yeah. lot while you were there. And now at Cerritos College, uh, one of the reasons that I was so excited to have you on the podcast is that, that your current institution is really kind of setting the bar for student support, student services, um, for issues around diversity and equity. And you're in such a unique part of California doing some really cutting edge programs. And I imagine it's very different than what it was like at Cal State San Marcos. Yes, that's true, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I think the student population is quite different than uh, San Marcos in that uh, we are in Los Angeles County. Many people don't know where Cerritos is. Uh, it is um, in the city of Cerritos in Norwalk, and we have uh, about 21, 22,000 students, predominantly about 70% uh, Latinx and uh, a mixture of other disproportionately impacted groups and about or 6% Caucasian and white. And so it's very different than even, you know, my time at Maricosta and San Marcos in, in that I, it's, you know, typically known as a predominantly white institution. So even how you do equity work looks very different. So yes, I've enjoyed learning, I think, how to work and partner with students and faculty and students in, in each of the environments. What are some of the, the really unique programs that you have on your campus? I know we talked a little bit about them while we were prepping for this podcast, and I have a big long list. Um, love mm -hmm. for you to touch on, on some of the great things that you've been doing. So um, in June of this uh, past year, in 2020, we actually had the opportunity to open up what we call the village. And the village is the first of its kind in the state of California but it is geared towards supporting our students who are experiencing homelessness. 
And so our campus had the opportunity to purchase a property, um, which is about five minutes away from our campus, where 24 to 28 of our students who are experiencing homelessness will live. They are seven townhomes. Each will probably have about four to six students in them. Uh, Students will have the opportunity to live there for as long as they are progressing forward with their degree. So while we own the property and have purchased that as a campus, we have partnered with Hovenus Inc., who are our nonprofit uh, service providers who are experts in the area of supporting students around basic needs and homelessness. And so they run the facility or the property for us. And we have the ability to provide an invaluable resource and support to our students. We have received lots of excitement about that. But in addition, we've also received um, $2.1 million from the Chancellor's Office to also get into partnership with Hovenis, but around master lease agreements within the community. So students who are over 24, uh, which is a population that's often not served by the social service agencies because it's typically 18 to 24. So we wanted to provide uh, financial resources and support to our students who have family members uh, and who are over 24 uh, with helping to supplement their rent. Um, And so they also have the ability to get additional support with housing. In order to support that, also brought on a licensed clinical social worker who is our um, mascot at Cerritos College is Franco the Falcon. And so we call a lot of our um, basic needs efforts Falcon's Nest. And so Falcon's Nest is our centralized uh, support. And it's actually an office. So it is a system and a mechanism to support our students, but it's also a physical space that houses our care manager and our a community resource office, as well as our partners with CalFresh. And we have a Franco's Market, which is set up like a Trader Joe's, and a Franco's Closet, which offers uh, students professional clothing and attire. And that is set up like a store, quite honestly, with a fitting room. So what is important to us is that we are providing basic needs support so that our students have dignity and respect, right? And so we want them to feel as if they were going to a store to shop to receive those items versus uh, receiving a distribution of sorts. The piece that's really important too is our ability to offer fresh food, fresh produce to students. And so there are refrigerators and the sink and in, in, in Franco's market. So For us, what we want to do is centralize our service and support so that students don't have to hunt around uh, or, you know, luck upon getting, you know, access is that they know that if you go to Falcon's Nest and tell us that you have a need, our um, case manager will help you assess your needs, connect you to on-campus resources, but also connect you to long-term resources in the community. Uh, One thing that I love about Cerritos College is that we understand that it is not our job to solve every need, right? Um, it's important for us to understand them so that we can connect students to those resources um, in the community that are, you know, their primary mission is to service people in the community. And so we want to connect them to those long-term resources. And so we ha- are really excited about the efforts that we are doing. And I have to tell you, that the one thing that I am I'm always uh, proud of, and I think people may not realize, 
is that we look at the demographics of the students who are being referred to our housing program. And when you look at the GPA of those students, I don't know why they're, they're and, and, and I'm guilty of this, but you would think that they may not be the best students, but I'm proud to report that the average GPA for that student population of, of folks who are referred is above a 3.0. And so students are very serious about, you know, wanting to, to commit to education. They just need help removing the barrier of housing and, and, and financial insecurity. So that is a primary commitment for our board and for our president who have set out a vision for us to really remove this as a barrier. And we are strongly committed to achieving this goal. I really like how you focus on that basic need support with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I've seen food pantries at a number of, of community colleges that are you know, downstairs or in a closet uh, mm-hmm. where it's, you're making a trip to get food. Like it's very clear that you're, you know, in need and it's mm-hmm. not something that's offered in such a supportive environment. So that philosophy that your college has set forward of dignity and respect must be felt by the students as well, just by how you've made environmental decisions on how to set up in the space for these students. Do they feel respected? Have you, have you felt that from students? Yeah. So I think it's interesting. So the physical space of what we call the Falcon's Nest was built right before and finished right before COVID hit. We don't want to create it to be a social service office. We almost want it to be center-like, right? Where students can come and feel comfortable hanging out and being. And so that is the goal and the philosophy. And so I will tell you that, you know, we haven't fully experienced the physical space yet, but that is the philosophy by which it's been designed. However, I will say this, we have been doing, you know, food distributions and grocery cards, um, you know, support. And I will tell you what I have appreciated about our student community is their desire to also help others, even in the midst of helping themselves. So I would say to you that I, while I haven't seen the physical space, I know that oftentimes with even our food distributions, the students who we are helping to serve are the ones who are also helping to serve others, that that really, um, I think, resonates that we're a community and it's a community challenge that we all are vested in for, you know, our president, our board, our executive council, all come out and work our food, food bank distributions that we're having once a month right now. And each of those distributions are serving between 1,500 and 2,000 families uh, each, each, each month. So I think you're right. It is a commitment that people experience and what we want them to feel is part of a community. Yeah. So it sounds like you've really created that culture on campus because it's Mm -hmm. been embraced not just by, you know, administration, but down to the student level, this culture of care. Mm -hmm. And you've actually Mm -hmm. gone through a a program care, a care type program. And I don't remember the name of that, but is it Mm -hmm. culture of care? Is it something like that? A program caring. You're culture. very good. <laughs> there. No, it's yeah. good. So, 
so I might have, so this is the value, right? So <laughs> I think, and this is funny, but not funny. So I've had the privilege of setting up a structure like this on three campuses and at San Marcos, Miracles to end here. And so I've learned, you know, a certain thing, but what I will say to you is all of them are usually, um, I think it's uh, San Marcos's Cougar Care Network, right? And then at Miracosta, we did Miracosta Cares, right? Yeah. And then here it's Cerritos Cares. Um, and so I think while it's not very novel anymore, the reality is I think it's an important message to send to students. Um, and so, yes, it's creating a culture of care and a network of support that it is beyond just any one resource or any one person that we really need to create a network of support or a web of support to help our students be successful. One of the things that's very difficult sometimes is that people don't understand why are we as a college campus taking this responsibility on. And I think, you know, the premise and the thought has to be grounded in that this is a social justice um, issue. It is not something that our students necessarily asked to be in. Many of our students are first generation, lower socioeconomic um, status. And so we have to understand and think about um, the institutional and societal systemic oppression that occurs that often hinders a student's ability um, to, I think, navigate um, either financially or navigate, you know, obviously mental health continues to be a challenge that we want to support our students with. And so these are societal issues that present themselves in our campus. And so we have an opportunity to remove judgment. And I have to say that if you're going to do this work, you have to move beyond looking at someone's outer appearance or looking at what they're wearing, what they're driving, what they're carrying, to really thinking about, it doesn't matter what that story is. If someone, most people would not sit in, a, in line for three hours for a box of food if they didn't need it. Uh, most students would not, right, ask for help. And they, there's a struggle to ask for help. So there's something in that story that we may not be privy to. But what I have seen, though, is that those situations where people take advantage of a system is more often, like less, it occurs very rarely, right? And so I just encourage that as people begin to do this work to move past the judgment, knowing that it is better to help the majority than to penalize the majority for the actions of a few. And so we don't, we have some very strong systems in place that really prevent any type of abuse or misuse. We take it seriously to be good stewards of the funds that we receive uh, and make sure that they're getting to the students who most need them. It's a great philosophy. And I could see, you know, how it, it is a very different philosophy than, than some colleges because, you know, there's a lot of transactional relationships between mm -hmm. students on campus where it's like, you come to campus, you learn, you know, here's your admissions and financial aid and both, you know, in and out, in and out. And yours approach seems to be more kind of like of a 360 escorting a student through being, being there as they make their journey, which is a philosophical difference from how some institutions operate. Sure. I, and, and I think that you're, you're absolutely correct. And I can only speak for me in this, but I think this is becoming more prevalent that even when I was going through my doctoral journey and we were, I was really focused on researching student success and what that looked like. I realized that, you know, I came from a family, my, both of my parents went to college, both of my brothers went to college, right? So I came from a family, a college going culture. 
And, and what's interesting to me is there were pivotal moments where there were things that happened in my life outside of my control. There were, you know, math is not my, wasn't my strongest suit. And so you have imposter syndrome, researching is, 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 is overwhelming. But I realized in that moment, in that process of being a student, that if I needed help, I wasn't Christian, I wasn't lower socioeconomic status, I had all the support in the world. And if I needed help getting through, how much more would someone who had all of those barriers against them need help? And so that is what has driven me and I think a lot of my colleagues to remain committed to this work because we have unfortunately in higher education created systems and structures that weed students out by holds and you know deadlines. And I'm not talking about academic deadlines. I think those are important, <laughs> but deadlines that are not associated with their success in the classroom, right? And so for me, from a student services perspective, my job is to help them overcome all of their barriers so that when they sit in that seat in that classroom, they are ready to focus on their schoolwork and to perform and to meet the rigor of the curriculum. And, and I don't say that lighthearted because I think that oftentimes people think that we are asking them to decrease the rigor of the classroom, right? And I, I actually think what I see in the students who are applying for these programs is if we help them with their basic needs, they will perform well. They have everything they need. It is just that if you are, have not eaten, you don't know where you're sleeping, you're not in a good mental health state, you cannot focus on your academics. Yeah, and I think I actually was gonna ask you like what you would say to somebody who, who argued that, oh, well, colleges, mm -hmm. whether it be a university or community college, shouldn't, shouldn't be playing this role, that this is really you know, outside of the scope of what college is intended to be. Um, providing services maybe should be left to other government agencies. But I think mm -hmm. you kind of just answered that, right? <laughs> like, I, I did, but I guess what I would say to you, because I think there are also folks, right, who get into this work at community colleges and want to meet all the needs for right. all students, right? right? And I think we have to stay focused on our academic mission. And our goal is to triage, to understand and get them connected to the outside, you know, or the community agencies that can help them. And, and what I say to our team, and I have to say this often, every single thing we do needs to be connected to their achieving their educational goal. If we are doing this and they are not progressing towards their educational goal, then we might be doing this in vain and need to look at, are we taking on more responsibility for student success than they are? Right. And so, and, and you're actually weaving, you know, student outcomes in, into mm -hmm. services and mm -hmm. having that be a metric. Mm -hmm. And also known, which is also known as holistic student support, right? Or student development is that piece that you talk about with 360 kind of holistic support, understanding that we are educating the whole student. You said something really interesting about yourself, you know, being positioned to be successful in college and still needing help. I had a conversation for another podcast that I haven't edited yet. So it's going to be out soon, but I had a conversation with, uh, a student who was formerly incarcerated um, mm -hmm. for, for over 20 years. Uh, he was uh, incarcer incarcerated uh, as a result of the three strike law. His third strike was very minor, but he ended up getting life in prison. And he didn't know what a link was. He, he went to oh. a class at, at Palomar and, and the 
faculty member was talking about um, a link. You got to click on the link and click on the link. Well, in prison, you don't have the internet. So he was like, what is a link? And I was like blown away because we don't, we have this curse of knowledge where it's, this is the way we, you know, our parents went to college. We went to college. We know what a link is. Like we have the internet, you know, we have food. So you don't know what others are experiencing and how detrimental that is to their success and the barriers that are there. It's amazing. It's, it's sad. And, but it's, it's so uplifting to hear, you know, what, what your campus and other colleges are doing to help students, you know, achieve their goals. Yes. Thank you. It's exciting work. Definitely. And one of your, your previous colleges, Cal State San Marcos, you had mentioned that um, that university actually successfully closed the achievement gap. So, you know, I, and I can take no credit for it. I, I think that it was also part of the culture, but there was a very specific team and, and very specific. And I will say Dr. Jeffrey Gilmore, who really single-handedly began to work with students as individuals and call students and contact students and um, communicate with students and when a student dropped out, they would reach out to that student and connect. And so it was some years ago, but they actually closed the achievement gap because of all of our campus efforts. And so I feel very privileged to have witnessed that and been a part of that. Um, And so, you know, as colleges now, and particularly community colleges are doing a lot of the student equity work, I, I have hope because I've seen it done. It's not a far reaching goal that it's not achievable. I truly believe if we align structures and systems um, really to be focused on the student and where they might need assistance and help, I think we could all close the achievement gap. Yeah, I remember when I was at Miracosta, we had this, and this was prior to you joining, um, but we had this culture shift where it was students first. And thinking mm-hmm. back, it's amazing to think that that had to even be a shift. <laughs> Shouldn't mm-hmm. that always be what you're doing is putting students first? But over time, large institutions tend to be inflexible with their rules and their mm-hmm. processes. And so it, it was a culture shift. Like why asking questions? Are these, are these rules, are these deadlines, are these punitive measures helping mm-hmm. students or are they making our jobs in the institution easier? I think you're right. And I, you know, having done a lot of my research on this, I spend time really thinking about like, you know, there is tradition, right, in history in the academy and in in higher education that I think is very valuable. And I also think there are forms of academic elitism that we say, we made it through, you you should be able to too. And you, you know, it's, it's kind of not a form of hazing, but it's almost this like we're developing and growing you if you jump through these four hurdles and we're teaching you to be resourceful. And, and I, I think that I, I struggle with that as I look at the number of holds that some, you know, our institutions have that literally, I think, you know, one institution I was talking to, they had a hold when students owed $25 to the campus but yet they were going to get financial aid in the next few weeks, but they would drop all of their classes. Um, There are holds, you know, for just minute things that I think as a campus, it's just reframing our thinking. And, you know, you probably have heard in community colleges, we have had a strong commitment to access, right? And we've, I believe, achieved that, that 
more students are attempting and starting college than ever before. However, our, our student success numbers, right, our graduation rates and achievement of, of their educational goals, it is not moving. That needle is not shifting as significantly as it needs to. And it, it, is, it, is, it is imperative upon all of us to, to really begin to think about, um, are we maintaining the status quo for the sake of, um, I don't know, making students earn their way that has nothing to do with really their academic abilities or you know, their, their ability to, 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 to be resourceful. When we talk about equity, I think that statement really is kind of at the heart of that. Are our policies creating equity on campus or are they creating barriers? And literally, and I would say a barrier or are we weeding students out, right? And, and, and I think that, you know, one of the things that at one of the previous campuses, we were going up for accreditation and it, it just was pivotal for me that we often talk, all we talk about is like the students who are successful. We often like, if a student drops out, do we, do we spend time calling that student to find out why, right? Are we reaching out? Do we know the students we're losing? And I think most campuses don't have a mechanism in place to contact students who have dropped off and dropped out. And I, I would venture to say, having done this work um, for a few minutes, is that when we start calling students, we will find that many of them left for reasons that are within our control. And sometimes simply asking them if they want to come back is enough mm-hmm. to get them to return. Mm-hmm. Because you noticed that they were they were gone, that you cared about them and you, you, they weren't just a number to you. Um, and I think you're right because you're investing in them. And I think you can have folks help develop, you know, a plan of action or, you know, work with a student to help them come back. It, it's a cultural shift, right? That even though I think that most people and many people, hardworking people that are committed to equity, it is easy to become insensitive to the impact that, that, that some of these structures are, are having on our students. And so it has been very, uh, it's shifted our perspective on our campus where we raise those questions of each other and people, you should see when the light bulb goes off that folks are really like, I didn't even think about it, right? As an equity issue. And, and it was, and they're committed to equity. So I think part of what I, you know, I think it's a constant communication and constant goal to be a learning organization uh, where you're always reviewing and in a place of inquiry because it's easy to become blind, right? In the, in the urgency of the day and all the different demands that we have to lose sight that we may be creating system and structures that are hindering our students. Oh my gosh, I love that statement so much <laughs> because I, I tell you that people start, colleges start all, I think this is not just colleges, it's all institutions. They start something wonderful. Maybe they start a discussion mm. around equity or they start a program or they start something. And then a couple years go by, but that communication around it doesn't continue. So it's been started mm. and it's there, but it's not part of the culture. And there isn't this like constant like you said, culture of inquiry and discussion. Mm -hmm. So then new people come or new students come and nobody knows why that thing is there or what that thing does or why that program exists. And then it kind of fizzles away or 
or it doesn't work. So I think that's such a key point is to not just become complacent with the services mm-hmm. that we create, but to constantly be talking and sharing and questioning and, and being inquisitive about why are we doing these things? Mm-hmm. Can we keep doing them better? Mm-hmm. Uh, such an important point. That's my soapbox for the and- day. <laughs> no, I I'm, I'm on it with you. And I, and I have to say, it's also being open to new ideas to solve the challenges and you would be amazed. In, and I think we all know this, but it's easier said than done. Ideas don't know hierarchy. They don't know organizational structure. There may be someone in finance that has a great idea that can help student services. There may be someone in, you know, student services that has a great idea to help facilities. And I think that oftentimes we're so siloed and we can't get out of the urgency and the immediacy of the day that we can't, we need to be more intentional about creating spaces for us to create that space to think, right? And to, to, to look at really and reflect on who we are and what we want and how we want our students to, to be successful. And so I, I will say to you, no matter what comes out of those types of conversations, it, it is good, it is well. Perfection is not the goal, right? Um, our, our learning and growing and, and um, changing and shifting, that's the goal not so much a particular service or initiative, right? Because they may go away with time, but it's creating that culture that creates that space for new ideas uh, and reflection to occur. If somebody wanted to get started having discussions on campus or, or better serving students in, in new ways, what, what's worked with you to build momentum and consensus? I, I think the first thing, in, and we say this often, and I think people take it for granted often, is, is, is to listen, right? So I think it's creating the space to talk to um, students um, to get the qualitative and the quantitative data about what their experience is, what challenges they are facing on any particular campus. Because while there are commonalities across campuses, there are some unique nuances and challenges that students face that I think we would be surprised how easy some of the the challenges would be to, to address. And so I think it's first talking to students and creating mechanisms by which to garner their voice and to hear what their experience is. Secondly, I think it is critically important to talk to faculty and the staff. So as we know, faculty probably see students more than any other office and often are on the front lines. And it's interesting because I was teaching at, um, uh, at, a, at a, a four-year institution in a graduate program as a faculty member and a student during the break, and I work in student services, and a student during the break asked me to come outside and they were crying profusely. And they looked at me and said, I just um, found out that I'm HIV positive. And despite the fact that I work in student services, as a faculty, I had no idea what to do. Like I was thinking, okay, run through your Rolodex of ideas and ideas and suggestions, right? And so I think about that experience as I think of my colleagues in academic affairs who every day are being faced with the unique challenges that students have in just being present in the classroom and trying to hear that story to not only address them for students, but to support and provide resources for for those that are on the front line working with students so that they can give that support to students as quickly as possible. 
And then I think it's getting into a position of being, being real and transparent and authentic. And, and I would say, and I think that this is a common thing that we say, but is that we need courageous leaders who are willing to look at the organization and, and really begin to, to look at it in a reflective manner to see what needs to shift and change and to be willing to engage people in those discussions. And, you know, for me, it's really important that we not place blame, that we not point fingers. The reality is it is what it is and we're here because, it, and we are, right? Like there's, we, we, it doesn't matter why we got here per se, but I think that it's creating that space for us to come together collectively to begin to create a, a list and, and prioritize it of what we can do to address the needs of our students. Um, and, I, and I think if I had to, to give one other thing that I think is critical and crucial is that we have to pay attention to the students that, that we lose. Um, and we have to pay attention to those that are at risk. And yes, they need the most work. Yes, they need the most effort. But I, I truly believe that when we start caring about those individual stories, um, it's when we will start seeing the achievement gaps close. Well, wonderful advice. And I think that Cerritos' college is very lucky to have you leading them and leading student services. And I'm, I'm going to invite my listeners to, um, to look you up on LinkedIn and connect with you. (laughs) I would love that. Great. And then to take a look at the services on the website too, because you have a lot of that listed and good information on there to learn more about, about the amazing things that you've accomplished and the way that you continue to serve, serve students. Well, thank you. And I have enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Higher Education Coffee and Conversation. If you like the podcast, please leave me a five-star rating. And to discover more great higher education-related content, make sure to visit us at graduatecommunications.com. And with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening. Thank you for the hard work you do for students each and every day.